Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, she's got a big job in normal times, leading the association that represents 400 hospitals around the state. But Marisa, her to-do list got a lot longer with this pandemic. Yeah, she's probably not the only one. Carmela Coyle is president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. The institutes she represents, of course, are at the epicenter of the state's response to the coronavirus pandemic. But hospitals are also facing tough economic times. And we're going to get into all that with Carmela in a few minutes. But first, Scott, the legislature is back in full swing. The state is gradually emerging from lockdown, at least parts of it. And we have from Sacramento, our very own Katie Orr, politics reporter on the line to tell us what is going on in the state capitol as lawmakers come back from around the state. Hey, Katie. Hey, Katie. Hi, guys. So you're at home today, we should say. We're all in our home studios, uh, which is a fancy way of <laughs> saying we're all My home. guest room, um, yeah. <laughs> but I know you have um, been watching both online and in maybe one case taking a foray to the Capitol. Tell us what the mood is up there and, and, and kind of how, what's the attitude of lawmakers as they come back after this uh, break that they took because of COVID? Well, it's a really interesting budget time. I think this is my, I think it's my seventh budget uh, cycle here since I've been covering the Capitol. And, uh, you know, suffice to say, we've never seen anything like this. Uh, Really, it's kind of frantic right now because lawmakers were on recess for about two-ish months because of COVID-19 while, you know, Newsom was doing his thing, responding to the pandemic. And so now they're back and they have to, by rule of the Constitution, pass a budget by June 15th. So this week we're seeing the Assembly cram in all their budget subcommittee hearings. That's where smaller committees within the budget committee dive into specific topics. Uh, The Senate is having theirs this week, too, and they'll have some next week. Um, And it's really weird, too, because they're limiting who can be in the Capitol because of social distancing. So you have people calling in on the phone. There were like, you know, and people are there were like 60 comments at one um one meeting yesterday and the line keeps growing so it's just a really different type of budget process and it's certainly very much shorter condensed and uh it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out as we go towards the june 15th uh budget deadline well and katie uh, as you were reporting this week uh, the legislators are starting to push back a little bit you know when they left town they uh, allocated 1.1 billion dollars with no strings attached and now they're back in the capital and they're 
they definitely seem to be reasserting themselves in terms of oversight and also pushing back on Newsom's request for additional money. I think it was about $3 billion with no strings attached once again. Absolutely. Uh, Newsom says uh, and his administration say they need this money if they have to react quickly, uh, if, if there's like a resurgence in, in COVID cases, something like that. But the legislature is saying like, hold on. We are a co-equal branch of government. We have a role to play. We have thoughts and, you know, on your proposal, we have our own proposals. And so it's going to be very interesting to see if they give Newsom as much as um, he wants, or if they really, you know, if they really push back. I'm sort of interested to see how the Assembly particularly does this, because um, Speaker Anthony Rendon has long touted uh, the co-equal branchedness, is that a word? (laughs) (laughs) Of the legislature versus the governor's office. And so I think there's going to be a real reluctance to cede any kind of power to him. Of course, you know, the legislative analyst office, the nonpartisan analyst that works with the legislature said as much in their review of the May revise that said they have to be, I think the term was they need to uh, jealously guard, the legislature does, its powers um, in terms of what they allow the governor governor to do or not. But I mean, Katie, this isn't in some ways that different from a normal year in that you always have a governor come out and no no matter what, if the legislature is his party or, you know, the opposite party, there's always some push and pull between their priorities and the governor's. Obviously, the stakes are so much higher this year. Um, You know, I I feel like there's been a lot of grumbling by lawmakers, but not a lot of actual like, well, I would have done that differently so far. And we heard that from Shirley Weber um, a couple of weeks ago on the show. I mean, is that just what it is? Do you think it's 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 just about maintaining those, um, you know, the the very important separations of power among our co-equal branches? Or are there like deep policy differences in the way that he's handled this crisis or his proposed budget cuts that you've seen emerge at all? Well, I think you're right in that there is always that push and pull um, between the different branches. And um, to his credit, Newsom was given a lot of props by the legislature when they got back from their research, their their recess for how he did respond to the pandemic. Um, everyone agreed that he took the action he needed to take, and there's not a lot of second guessing that. I think the biggest issue we're seeing with this budget is Newsom's reliance on the federal government and um, his he's linking about $14 billion in potential cuts to as of yet like just theoretical um, financial assistance from the federal government. It's his way of trying to pressure the federal government to pass another um, relief package and give more money to the states. Um, But if that doesn't happen, uh, at least if it doesn't happen by July, $14 billion worth of cuts will go into effect um, for California. Now, his administration says uh, those cuts could be rescinded if uh, the money does eventually come through. Although, again, Senator Holly Mitchell pointed out in her hearing, like, you can't just snap your fingers and have money go back and forth. Like, there's a whole process. So if you go through this process of cutting things and then they get the money three months later, it's going to take a while before they can restore it uh, because – you know, it's a bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, all, all of this, uh, all these budget problems are caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And 
One thing the governor did this week is he stopped doing his daily briefings. He's going to do them intermittently, maybe a couple times a week. And he also is allowing more counties to to go further in their reopening. And all that was happening as they were kind of reopening on their own or at least pushing the envelope. What's your sense, Katie, about, you know, how how he how has he struck that balance between, you know, guiding them into reopening versus like who's leading here the counties or the governor i guess is what i'm saying <laughs> I, I yeah it probably depends on the day you know <laughs> i think it is true that he um one of the things that i found really interesting is when we sort of got we're getting over the hump of um of a upswing of cases here he was telling people at his news conferences oh we're weeks not months away from reopening and that was not playing well and then you saw him starting to say we're days not weeks <laughs> away from reopening because no. i think he sensed i mean rightly that people are getting very antsy and as you say scott he does not want to seem like he's in the position of playing catch-up he wants to be seen as the one leading the way not you know giving in to state to counties who say you know forget you we're doing what we want but katie and we're going to take a break after this but i mean are are we ready has anything materially changed enough since march that that newsom is arguing that you know folks can kind of go back to normal well i think they have seen the uh cases kind of level out and i have seen the point made that even though we are testing more and they are testing a lot more people than they were. That was one of the state goals and it really has been ramped up. And as they test more people, they're not seeing a significant spike in like positives. And so there is science to back it up. And I do think that Newsom is serious when he says he is relying on the science. If those numbers spiked up, I don't know that he would be letting counties move forward um, like he is. So there is, um, there is, numbers behind it it's hard because it's also abstract you know and it's one of those things that if you're not place is different right and if you don't directly experience it you might not realize you know the seriousness of it perhaps so i think Mm -hmm. it's a it's a tough one for him to juggle for sure for everyone to juggle katie or our sacramento politics reporter thank you so much you're welcome All right, we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll be joined by California Hospital Association CEO Carmela Coyle. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we are thrilled to be joined by by Carmela Coyle. She is president and CEO of the association representing 400 hospitals around the state. Welcome to The Breakdown, Carmela. Thank you so much for having me. We are very pleased to have you. Um, You know, we were just talking at the top about the state budget, and um, I thought we might start there. 
you, as we mentioned, are representing these hundreds of hospitals. And I think it might surprise some people to learn that as you guys all geared up um, for the potential COVID surge and, you know, canceled those surgeries and appointments, that hospitals are now facing an estimated 10 to $15 billion in losses. Um, some of the revenue estimates are up to 60% of revenue losses in rural hospitals. We're looking at layoffs. Talk about, like, explain why the, this is happening at a time when we're all looking towards our medical system more than ever. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I think most of us, we um, – uh, probably take the healthcare system for granted, right? Uh, we know our hospitals are there 24 seven. Uh, they're open when we need them. It's the first place we head when there's an emergency. But I think most people don't really think behind the scenes about how the financial uh, system works as it relates to mm -hmm. hospitals. And so what's happened is that um, in order to address this COVID crisis, uh, California's hospitals really answered the call. The governor asked California's hospitals to be able to surge 40%, basically to take on 40% more patients and care for them if needed. And then he came back and he asked us to be ready to surge 50%. So in order to do that, we had to empty hospitals. And that means we had to close down services and procedures and try to empty beds to make way uh, for the potential for COVID patients. And what all of that means is that there was no revenue flowing into hospitals mm -hmm. as a result, no patients, and that's how hospitals get paid uh, by treating patients, no patients. The great news um, is that we didn't need those beds uh, and we were able to flatten the curve of infection in California. Uh, but the bad news is this has been devastating for California's hospitals and has really put us on the financial brink. Hindsight, of course, is always twenty twenty, uh, And as you said, it, it, it turned out really well. You know, we didn't need the capacity that you were all prepared for. But, you know, if you were to be able to do it again, what would you do differently? And what do you think this situation that we're in right now in terms of your financials, what does it tell us about our hospital system and the economics of it? We are actually preparing right now uh, and drafting up plans for how we would do this again. And that is because I think for many of us in the middle of this, uh, we know this is not over. Uh, while there's talk about counties coming back online, we all need to prepare not only for an increase in COVID infection as we all begin to mix and mingle and, and move around again, uh, but we have to prepare for the real possibility of a second surge and a surge that could be even worse than what we experienced uh, the first time. So one of the things I think maybe the most important lesson we can't address this by simply closing down the healthcare system. Uh, not only is that um, uh, horribly financially challenging for hospitals, but it meant that many people who were in need of care, not COVID-related care, but heart attacks, strokes, patients with cancer, uh, were not able to get some of the care that they needed. And we know in retrospect that simply um, uh, turning the lights off on the healthcare system uh, is not good for Californians. It's not good for their health. Um, and so we've got to find a different way to be able to surge more in real time rather than closing down capacity in advance and making way. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because 
Um, I have two little kids, and I've definitely told them repeatedly, don't break a leg right now, right? Like, <laughs> you don't want – I mean, it's okay we now, know now that – Yeah, things are better now. But, um, but, but that brings up – I mean, I, I want to get into some of how hospitals have been dealing with this because it seems like that's a hard – that's probably a hard balance to strike. And I'm just curious, like, what – I mean, what does that look like? What is your modeling showing? We were just talking about this reopening, um, and it does feel a little tenuous, you know, that we, we don't have a vaccine, we don't have therapies, and we're testing more, but we don't have all of those tools that folks have been telling us we need. So how are your member hospitals kind of trying to make that balance of, you know, bringing back some revenue and, and all of that, but also knowing that this is this pandemic is not over? California's hospitals uh, really do remain concerned. And it's because the decision to reopen um, and our preparedness to be um, ready to face what may be another surge actually is the confluence of a number of things. People tend to think, first of all, about the space. You know, is there a bed available? But it's more than that. It is about the testing. We need to be able to understand who has the COVID virus and who does not. Um, that's going to be critical as we move into the fall. So hospitals surge anyway in the fall because of the flu season. It will be critical that we not only press for vaccination, but that we're able to separate uh, somebody who's got the flu from somebody who may have the COVID-19 disease. Um, it's dependent on personal protective equipment. Uh, these are the, you know, the respirators and the face masks and the face shields and the isolation gowns and the gloves, all of that, which still to this day remains in short supply, and that supply chain is spotty. So hospitals are still uh, concerned about their ability to access that equipment, and that's essential to keeping our healthcare workers safe. And the third is staffing itself. Uh, we've got to be able uh, to staff those beds uh, if there are more of them, and that is probably the greatest challenge. It is why we are so worried right now uh, what's happening to hospitals because of this huge loss, by the way, like nothing we've ever seen before. But this huge financial loss, hospitals have only one option, and that is to begin to furlough and lay off workers. And that's because uh, for a typical hospital, 60% of their costs are labor, right? Hospitals are about people taking care of people. Uh, it's very people intensive. And so when they're hit, and the other 15% of their costs uh, are related to the things needed uh, to care for an individual. So three quarters of a hospital's costs um, are, are related to care delivery. The only choice they have in a financial circumstance like this is to begin to cut back on labor. And that's the exact opposite of what all of us believes we need in this system right now. Well, so, let me ask you um, because... We are pressing uh, for help. Yeah, and, and, and in terms of that help, I know you asked the governor for a billion-dollar lifeline in the state budget uh, in this current fiscal year, another $3 billion in next year's budget. And it looks like the governor put you know none of that into the budget and i'm wondering what are you hearing from his office from his administration uh, about why that is and might there be you know money coming that the legislature puts in 
Yeah, we are disappointed that the governor did not include that funding in his release of the budget. Uh, We have until June 15th to work with the governor and the legislature. And while uh, clearly we understand, as does every Californian, that this budget is tough, that the shortfall is enormous, in my view, a budget is a set of the state's values and priorities expressed in numbers. And so we are still a state that is spending over $200 billion. Uh, What we're suggesting is we need to prioritize hospitals now. So uh, we don't look at this as a lack of funding. We look at it as a need to reprioritize, to put hospitals first, because in the governor's own reopening plan, Hospitals' ability to surge is one of the six metrics, right, that every county has to, has to be able to meet. And as a result, if hospitals are not open, available, and staffed and ready to deal with a surge, we will not be able to reopen California's economy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we're talking to the California Hospital Association CEO, Carmela Coyle. Carmela, you know... Healthcare, you're right, we're all paying more attention, but it has been a very contentious uh, political sort of football for decades. And I know you've been involved um, at the, the national level with the health association there, or the hospital association there. Um, you ran the Maryland Hospital Association before coming to California. Can you talk a little bit about the structure? I mean, it would seem to me that if, you know, if there's less patients, then our insurance company is paying out less money. Does that mean they're hurting or flush with cash? A lot of your hospitals are for profit. Um, I, I can see there might be people out there who would be sort of grimace at the idea of, of taxpayers um, putting money into hospitals, considering how much a lot of people pay out of pocket for health care. Can you talk about that dynamic and sort of what, what's the case for that, given where you guys sit in this very complicated ecosystem of health care? Sure. And, and maybe let's start with how money flows through the system. Uh, for those of us who are insured, and California is a state that enjoys some of the highest rates of insurance in the United States, some 96% of Californians uh, have insurance. Um, those of us who are insured, we pay a premium, uh, an amount of money, or and our employer may do that on our behalf to an insurance company. The insurance company then holds on to that money, and then they pay hospitals and doctors and nursing homes and others when an individual receives care. And that is the cash flow for hospitals that comes through so that we can keep the lights on and the doors open and staffed and all the rest. What has Mm -hmm. happened is we're all continuing to pay our insurance premiums. Those dollars are sitting with the insurance companies, but they're not being paid out because of care that was not provided. Mm -hmm. What's different for hospitals, and by the way, we've got lots of sectors of the economy uh, who are dealing with revenue losses, uh, you know, restaurants and movie theaters and retail stores. What's different about hospitals is that while everybody else uh, closed those businesses and did not incur expenses, hospitals were actually open and incurring even greater expenses as we were preparing for COVID patients, buying ventilators, buying personal protective equipment at prices that started to skyrocket, um, and being there and ready, hiring extra staff and all of the rest. So that's what's created that financial uh, crunch. 
In terms of the cost of hospital care, right, lots of conversation about health care generally and uh, real consumer concerns about the affordability of health care. And at least the way I think about it, um, we have a challenge, and it's really almost more of an ethical challenge uh, as a nation, and that is we are able to do amazing things in our healthcare delivery system, literally save lives, replace organs, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, the technology continues to get better and better and more and more expensive. The things we're able to do uh, to no long, not only um, provide a better quality of life, uh, but to really provide longer life. I mean, it's just amazing, and it's expensive. And well, I think the challenge in the conversation we face is how do we continue to do what we do while making certain that health care is affordable for all? Well, and I want to ask what you about COVID that. What because... the challenge has just done for us is to ensure that health care is going to be even more expensive. And I think the real discussion we'll be having is hospitals have been asked to run even more efficiently, uh, even more affordably. Uh, we don't purchase equipment right until just in time at the last minute. And what this COVID crisis, I think, will start is a discussion about how much do we want to invest to make sure that we are prepared and prepared for anything. Do we want to pay for extra space to be there and available should a surge return? Let me ask you, though, because even before the COVID pandemic struck, there were a lot of questions about how hospitals bill, especially people who come in without insurance and they're paying out of pocket. Uh, historically, at least, uh, hospitals would charge a lot more than they would uh, be willing to accept from insurance companies, sometimes uh, four or five times more that would have to come out of pocket. Is that still the case? And, you know, how, how do hospitals justify that? Because in, in a sense, it's, you know, sort of balancing the books or making a profit on the backs of those who can least afford it. Yeah, maybe a couple of things there. Um, first of all, just hospital pricing generally, uh, it's a challenge. And that is because the majority of patients that a hospital, a typical hospital cares for, are either Medicare patients over the age of 65 or Medi-Cal patients, uh, lower income individuals. And both of those government programs, Medicare is a federal government program, Medi-Cal is a state government program, pay less than the cost of caring for those patients. So that government underfunding gets shifted to insured individuals who then have to pay more than the cost of caring for an insured individual so that hospitals can make ends meet. Um, it is not a situation or a circumstance that uh, anyone is satisfied with, uh, but that is the system of health care that we have in the United States today. So we've got that challenge in terms of that payment. Um, I, before COVID hit, there was a lot of conversation about surprise bills. Uh, people who may go to a hospital and have uh, um, a procedure done, and one of the physicians caring for them may have been outside of their insurance network. California actually has some of the strongest uh, laws on the books today that prohibit balance billing. Uh, a lot of that is happening outside the state of California, but we do have places uh, that we can continue to close the gaps for individuals and make certain that uh, patients are pulled out of the middle of this. Patients shouldn't have to pay more 
for emergency care uh, than somebody who is in an insurance network. Uh, we think that ought to go away. That's tied up right now in legislative conversation, probably more for the coming year than for this year. Um, but it shouldn't get in the middle of those negotiations between insurance companies and hospitals. All right, Carmel, we're getting short on time. But before we go, I want to ask you, um, you know, there's been a lot of kind of turning back to COVID. um, There's been a lot of onus placed on states and local governments and and your member hospitals around the PPE, the testing, all the things we've been talking about and that are going to allow us to get back to some semblance of normal. And I just want to ask you, as someone who spent, um, I think, some two decades with the American Hospital Association, and I assume a lot of that in D.C., What's your take on how the federal government's role in this um, so far, and and if you're hopeful that it could change moving forward? Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and I have had the privilege of serving uh, in an association role uh, for the last 32 years. You're right, 20 of those in Washington, D.C. Um, I think the federal government um, will do some very serious thinking uh, about this circumstance uh, once we get over this peak and as we're preparing for the next. I think one of the most important roles that the federal government can play is being that strategic national stockpile, a place where we have excess equipment that may be in need. The challenge, of course, associated with that is we've got to try to predict what the next crisis or concern may be and therefore what equipment may be needed. But I do think there is an important role for the federal government uh, to really be a place where that equipment is there and available for uh, anyone or any place in the United States that may need it. And I think think the federal government's role needs to be about federal funding as well. Um, We're hearing uh, this governor, Governor Newsom, ask for assistance, help from the federal government. It really does need to to start there. All right. Carmela Coyle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, 
You'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.